My name is Philip Smith, as Pastor Trey said, and what a joy, what a joy, a tremendous joy of mine to be with you here this morning. Um, I'm the pastor of Redeemer City Church, which is uh, just up the road in, in Greenville, South Carolina, and as Pastor Trey said, man, prior to um, uh, planting Redeemer City Church, I was on staff at the Summit Church for for over 10 years, and that's where I got to know, and, 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 and I had the, the privilege and opportunity of meeting Pastor Trey, um, your beloved pastor, for the first time, and, and, and Pastor Trey and I, man, we hit it off immediately. We became, we became good friends right off the bat because in my personal and, and humble opinion, we share the most important thing that any two people um, can have in common if they're going to be good friends, and that is that Pastor Trey and I are both diehard Georgia Bulldogs fans, y'all. In, in fact, we're not just diehard Georgia Bull, Bulldog fans. We're diehard, back-to-back, national champion Georgia Bulldog fans, y'all. Go dogs, man. We love the Georgia Bulldogs. When I saw David Pollock's face when I walked in the building, I said, man, God's country. I'm back. I'm home. Um, I'm actually a Georgia native. I'm from Buford, Georgia, uh, born and raised there. And yes, you can pray for me as I continue to suffer for the Lord up in Clemson Tiger Country, because we all know, man, that there's a reason that the Bible compares Satan to a cat. Cats are evil. They have no soul. I'm sorry to any of you that have a thousand cats in your house. They have no soul. They're evil. And my church is filled with Clemson Tiger fans, okay? So y'all know how you can be praying for me. Um, but listen, uh, before we get into it today, I just want to say on behalf of our entire church, man, thank you, Eagles Landing, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your generosity, for your prayers, for your support um, that has really enabled us as a church to hit the ground running since we planted in last September. We're less than a year old as a church. Because of your generosity, we've been able to double as a launch team. We had 43 adults move with us, and there were 30 kids attached to those uh, to, to those 43 adults. So we had a ton of kids that moved with us, and we've been able to double since we launched in last September. We have over uh, 80 adults now. We have 60 kids, so you can also pray for us in that, a brand new church with over 60 kids. We've had like 12, 15 babies since we've landed in Greenville. Man, the Lord is blessing us. And many of us, if you know anybody who uh, is interested in being a part-time kids director, you know where to send them, okay? But, but, but listen, man, we've seen six people come to faith in Jesus and be baptized since we launched. Our church is growing. Our church is healthy. We have new staff coming on in the fall. We have new members that are joining right here in the middle of the summer. And, and right now, we are in the works of trying to find and, and really planning to land into a permanent location uh, later this year or early next year. And that would not be possible. It wouldn't be possible for us to be considering that apart from your generosity. So Eagles Landing, thank you. Be encouraged. Be encouraged today that God is using your generosity, that he's working, he's moving, he's saving, disciples are being made. Be encouraged this morning. In Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up, turn them on, meet me over in Acts 20. Uh, this year, we've been walking through the book of Acts as a new church. As a new church, we're trying to learn from the birth of the church and all the things that define the church, that characterize the church from the very beginning, we're saying as we grow and we, we become establishment, we want those things to define us and characterize us. And so as we look at Acts 20 today, I simply, Eagles Landing, I want to remind you of these things. And I want to say, man, Eagles Landing, we see these very things in you. And we feel these very things 
um, through your support. So in many ways, this is me simply saying, Eagles Landing, man, just keep doing what you are already doing. Keep leaning into the Spirit of God. And so before we get into chapter 20, I just want to set the stage real quick uh, for where we're going to pick up in this book. Because the, the whole book of Acts is really built around one verse. One verse in chapter 1 is Acts 1-8, Jesus talking to the disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the book of Acts. That's the, that, that is the table of contents of the book, as some scholars say. The gospel explodes in Jerusalem. Jesus tells the disciples this, but, the, but they don't go anywhere. They, they stay in Jerusalem. It, we, we say at Redeemer City, man, that God saves us to send us, not just to sit us. And we get that in part from looking at right here in the first few chapters of Acts. So they stay in Jerusalem, but God pushes them out through persecution, and we see the gospel get into Samaria and into Judea. And then it makes its way down to Africa in chapter 8. And then it makes its way over to European soil for the first time in chapter 16 when it makes it to Philippi. And then it makes it down in 17 to Athens, the intellectual capital of the empire. And then finally it makes it to Rome, the ends of the earth. It was the literal center of the world at that time. But the interesting thing about the book is that it, the whole book is building up to this moment. The gospel is going to get to the ends of the earth and then what's going to happen? And then it just ends. We don't know what happens. It's a huge cliffhanger. Paul makes it to Rome, and then the whole thing, it just stops. And you gotta, you got to wonder, because if you're ever reading it, you can be frustrated when you get to the end of Acts. And you're like, okay, God, what's the point of taking me on this long journey just to end here without really knowing what happens? And I think the reason for that is to show us today that the story that God is writing in the book of Acts, he's still writing it today. The, the mission that God begins to advance in the book of Acts, it's, it's a mission that he's still advancing today through your church and through my church. And he wants to use you to advance his mission just like right here in the pages of Acts. It's a mission that's still unfolding. It hasn't stopped. And the reason it hasn't stopped is because the God of the book of Acts is still alive. He, he's not dead in the grave. He's alive. He's ruling. He's reigning and he's asking us to go and make his name known. And so Acts 20, though, this chapter, it feels kind of like the beginning of the end of the book. But again, because Acts doesn't really have a true ending, this chapter serves really as an invitation to every single one of us, to each one of us personally and to us as a church, to step into this story, this story that's still unfolding. Acts 20 because the book doesn't have an ending, this is an invitation to us to make this story that God is writing our story. For him to begin to write these same things through our lives. And so in Acts 20, Paul is giving a farewell speech here that it really summarizes four central values that he has lived by. He's saying goodbye to this, these church leaders in Ephesus where he spent three years, longer than he spent anywhere in any of his missionary journeys. These people love him. They know him. They care for him. This is his farewell speech to them as he heads to Jerusalem and then to Rome where he's assuming that he's going to be martyred and he will never see them again. These are, the Apostle Paul, these are his last words. As one pastor said, this is like Paul's tombstone right here, which just begs the question for every single one of us, man, as people are looking at our lives, as people are interacting with us, as people are spending time with us, when we're gone... What are those people going to put on our tombstone that we lived for, 
that we gave our life for. This is a unique spot in the book of Acts because it's the only extended speech made to Christians. All the other speeches are made to unbelievers, trying to persuade the Jews, trying to, uh, trying to convert the Gentiles. From, 20, from chapter 20 to 28, it's going to be Paul talking to rulers and to the leaders of the Roman Empire, to literal kings. But right here, nestled in the middle in chapter 20, this is for us. He's writing this, saying this to the church. This is a word for us. This is how the Holy Spirit wants every single one of us, wants all believers to think about their life, no matter where you are. Whether you're a college student, whether you're, whether you're in high school, or whether you're in the last season of your life, this is how the Holy Spirit wants you to think about your life. And the question at the heart of this is, in light of what Jesus died for, what will you give your life for? In light of what he died for, what he bled and died for, what will you give your life for? And in this speech, Paul points to one central thing that drove his whole life, and all of it. All the, 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 the time he spent in prison, persecution he endured, the, the victories, the revivals that he saw in his ministry, the miracles that, that he got to be a part of, the miraculous things that were going on. He says there was one thing that tied it all together. All of this, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the one thing that made it all worth it, the hard things and the good things, that made it, the, the one thing that made it all worth it was a single purpose to make Jesus look wonderful which is why the title of this sermon is worth it. The mission is to make Jesus look wonderful. That's the mission. That's what we're called to do. Wherever we are, wherever God has placed us, he's simply asking us to, hey, leverage your life, leverage what you have to make me look wonderful. That's the mission. Let's pick up in verse 17, chapter 20. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I'm not, I don't know what's going to happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, everywhere I go, imprisonment and affliction. That's what awaits me. And here's the key verse, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I might finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, to make that look wonderful, to make Jesus look wonderful. Translation, following Jesus will cost you your surrender. It will cost you your surrender. There is no following Jesus. There really is no truly knowing Jesus or receiving the grace of Jesus without first surrendering to Jesus. And listen, if you've never done that today, if you've never surrendered to him, this is an invitation to do it. To see that what we find in Jesus is better than anything else we find outside of him. That he is more wonderful than anything we can find outside of him. Because listen, surrendering to Jesus means nothing else than seeing that our all is in Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. When the Spirit falls in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, when the Spirit works all through the book of Acts, that is the one thing he's doing. The primary role of the Spirit is to enable us to see how wonderful Jesus is. That's why people were doing all the things they were doing in the book of Acts. It's not because they were uniquely uh, courageous. It's not because they were uniquely gifted and had all of these skills and talents and abilities. It's simply because they believed Jesus was better. And he was worth living for. He was worth dying for. That he, living for him, is worth it. Yes, 
giving sacrificially, it's hard, but it's worth it because we get to see churches planted that make Jesus look wonderful. Yes, uprooting your life to go and plant a church, it's really hard, but it's worth it because Jesus is more wonderful. Yes, moving overseas, taking your family overseas to a place with little to no access to the gospel, yes, it's hard, it's dangerous, but it's worth it because Jesus is more wonderful. Yes, I know starting conversations with your, your, your neighbors, it's, it's super awkward. Building relationships with people in your workplace, it's super awkward sometimes. But guess what? It's worth it. It's worth it because Jesus is more wonderful. As Dane Ortland says, man, the spirit changes us by making Christ look wonderful to us. Oftentimes, I, I think that, man, our struggle to obey, our struggle to live on mission, it has less to do with the opportunities that are in front of us, and it's more, it has more to do with the fact that we've grown, we have grown cold to how wonderful Jesus truly is, that he is worth giving it all for. But here's the hard truth. It's not easy. Look at Paul's life. Look at what he's saying. Oftentimes, I would say most of the time, God calls us to point to all of this stuff in the midst of trials and afflictions and sickness. And, and, and God, the, walking through the pain of God actually stripping away things in our life that we tend to hold on to and worship and lean into and find our peace in other than him. And some of you are well-versed in following Jesus in hard times. You're like, Pastor Philip. I've got a PhD in following Jesus in hard times. You have no idea. And you're looking at your life and you're like, God, man, how about you move on from my life? This person a couple of rows ahead of me, how about you move on to their house? You've been in my house for a couple of years now. It's time for you to move on, isn't it? But here's the deal, and Paul's trying to show us this. It's, it's that in these trials and afflictions, in these seasons, that's where God often does his greatest and his most unexpected work in you and through you. Why? Because it's in those seasons that only he can get the glory for it. That only he, all, that people look at your life and, and all they see is the sufficiency of our Savior. That's why the whole mission begins by seeing Jesus as the most wonderful thing. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that uh, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So if the mission is making Jesus look wonderful, the first thing, if you're taking notes today, is that we commit to point others to Jesus and not ourselves. We, we commit to do that, to point others to him and not us. Basically, what Paul says here is that when I was with you, I did one thing. I directed your attention as much as I possibly could to Jesus and not to me. Notice he says in verse 19, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials. This is not how leaders typically describe themselves and define their ministry. Remember, these are his last words. This is what he's saying. Remember this about me, and I'm just going to tell you about my tears and my afflictions. In fact, this word here, humility, in verse 19, is often translated as weakness. Uh, in, in, in Greek, it was, it was used as an insult. It meant low, defeated, and weak. But the word is used over 200 times in the Bible, and it's almost always presented as a virtue. Why? What is it about the gospel that makes something that's an insult, and it, it transforms it into a virtue? Why does Paul take this word, this normally we throw it as an insult, and he uses it, and he says, this is actually what describes the Christian life. Well, it's because the Christian life at its core is not about extraordinary men and women of great power. The Christian life is not about God saying, I want to show everyone around you how awesome you are. 
and how strong you are. The Christian life is about a great Savior who can save us from anything. He can rescue us out of the pit of our sin. He saves us from anything, and then he uses the weakest and most broken and most guilty of sinners to make him look great, to make him look wonderful. So by inviting these men, these elders right here, and then inviting us into this story, he doesn't want to leave us with an example to admire, but he wants to leave us with a Savior to trust in. He's not saying, look at how awesome I am, and just go be awesome like, like Paul, right? We shouldn't get bracelets and say, just go be awesome like Paul. That's not what he's doing. He's leaving them with a Savior to trust in, which is why Paul sees his afflictions right here, his fight with sin, the trials, all of these things as opportunities to trust in a Savior. They're opportunities that demonstrate the sufficiency of Jesus. How do you typically look at the things in your life that feel like affliction? Do we look at those things as places where we can show others the sufficiency of our Savior? Because I think if we're honest, most of us look at these as obstacles. Obstacles to living on mission. Obstacles to making Jesus look wonderful. Not opportunities to do it. And one of the ways we do that is that we mistake visibility for value. We mistake visibility for value. It's the lie that the people that God loves and uses and values most are the ones that are most visible. So you look at someone like me or Pastor Trey, or you look at people on stage, you're like, those are the people that God uses. That's the way that God works. It's in visibility. Social media is just the absolute worst at this because we just look at everyone's curated lives on social media and we're like, man, well, God can never really use me because I can't even keep up with the laundry, y'all. Look at my sink and the dishes overflowing. I mean, I'm not posting that on social media, right? And we just get in these weird, like, mental gymnastics with ourselves or just feeling defeated, feeling like, man, my life is hard. God can't use me. Look at all of this stuff. But here's the thing. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And what does it say? He was simply going from house to house. He was living in community. And here's the thing. Almost none of it is recorded. The, the, the place where he spent the longest on any of his missionary journey, we don't really know anything that happened there. Why? God did incredible things in Ephesus. A church was planted. People were saved. Lives were changed. Missionaries were sent out. And we don't know anything about it. Well, I think the reason is to tell us that value is not in visibility. It's in your availability. Real, real value is, is not saying, man, if, if I'm going to be used by God, then all these things have to work out in my life. They have to look a certain way. No, it's simply us making ourselves available to be used by God wherever he has placed us. Because, yes, you might feel weak and you might feel inadequate, but God can accomplish more with one act of your obedience, one act of faithfulness than you can accomplish in 10,000 lifetimes on your own apart from him. And that is the story of the book of Acts anyways, because I told you, man, the gospel gets to, it gets to Rome by the end. But here's the thing. How did the gospel get to Rome? Nobody knows. And, 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 and one of, the, one of the, the, the implications of the book of Acts is that the gospel got to Rome through ordinary people, living their lives simply with the sole purpose to make Jesus look wonderful wherever they were, in the workplace, in their homes, around their dinner tables. And, and just by doing that, the whole empire was turned upside down. By ordinary people saying, my life matters and it counts, and God used that to get the gospel all the way to Rome. Pointing others to Jesus is more about your availability than your, your visibility. But another way we do this, we see things as obstacles in our lives, is that we let the immediate distract us from the ultimate. 
We become just absolutely consumed with the immediate. We totally lose sight of the ultimate, the busyness, the pressures, the fears, insecurities. My awkward personality, it seems like, you know, some of you might say, man, every time I start a conversation, I seem to make things worse and more awkward, so why should I open my mouth, right? Or just distracting ourselves or scrolling on our phones. The immediate consumes us and just the ultimate, what God is doing, the story he's writing, man, it just totally gets ignored. And because of the immediate, for many of us, I think if we're honest, the way we look at people around us in our workplace, families, neighborhoods that are far from Jesus, we look at them Not the way Paul does here, but we look at them with apathy or anger. Just indifference. I'm busy. Like, I'm I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I'm barely able to keep up. I don't have time to really think about these people that are around me. Or, man, I feel so overwhelmed at work, and I've got all of these deadlines, and we just become indifferent to the people around us. Or maybe we even become angry because they're in our way. There's so much to do. Apathy, anger. But what characterized Paul's attitude here was tears. Tears, not anger. Verse 31 says, man, I did not cease to admonish you night and day with tears. Does your presentation of Jesus flow with your tears? Do your prayers for other people around you flow with your tears? This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, if sinners be damned, at least make them leap to hell over our dead bodies. Come on, church. And that should be our perspective to people that are far from Jesus, that they would have to leap over us to get to hell. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay, imploring them to behold our wonderful Savior, who's filled with riches of grace. That's why Paul says in the book of Ephesians over and over again, don't forget, God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. In case you forgot, the the mercies of God are in abundance for you. Don't forget and point other people to them because they're there for them as well. But so often, man, the problems of today, they lead us to lose sight, just completely lose sight of the perspective of eternity. And so what is that immediate thing for you right now that maybe feels suffocating? that feels so limiting, it leads you to, to say, man, I, I can't serve, I can't fully plug in, I, I, I don't have margin and capacity for these things. There's this immediate thing that feels so overwhelming and so hard, and God wants, he, said, he has to say this to, to the Apostle Paul, it's recorded in 1 Corinthians, God wants to say the same thing to you. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's when you are weak that people can see the sufficiency of our Savior. I mean, don't you ever wonder why it is that when someone becomes a Christian, God doesn't just make everything easy? Especially since I've become a parent, I feel like um, we've got four small kids, eight to one. I feel like my prayer life, 90% of the time is, God, why is this so hard? (laughs) Like, this should have been easier Children are a blessing, man, praise God. But man, I'm like crumbling over here. God, why is it so hard? Why would Paul's life be characterized by tears and trials, affliction, persecution, sitting in prisons? Why would it be characterized like that? And the reason is because tears and trials are how God keeps us weak in ourselves so that we can be strong in pointing people to him. That's what God wants you to be strong in. He wants to strengthen you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever your circumstances, whatever limiting factors you feel like are in your life, to to be strong and pointing people around you to the goodness of, of God. Because listen, just like Paul, God has given every single one of us a particular assignment. 
He has put you somewhere, in a neighborhood, in an office, in a family. God has given all of us a particular assignment to make him look wonderful, even in, dare I say, especially in our afflictions. Verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in among you, not not, uh, sparing the flock at all. And from among your own selves, there will arise people speaking twisted things to draw people away after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years, I did not cease day and night to admonish every single one of you with tears. Second, making Jesus look wonderful. It, It means that we commit deeply to the gospel and to one another. We commit deeply to the gospel and to one another. Paul's saying there's one institution, one, one single institution that Jesus died for. That's it. One body that he gave his life to create, and that is the church. People make huge investments into all kinds of things all the time, right? There's a reason that the Georgia Bulldogs are, are, are repeat national champions. It's because, yes, we have good players, but we also pay our coaches a lot of money. And people give a ton of money to have the best facilities in the country. But what Paul is saying is that no one has made a bigger investment into any institution than Jesus did for the church. Paul says, man, if Jesus poured out his blood for the church, then I'm going to pour my life into it. If this is what Jesus died for, then this is what I'm going to give my life for. And listen, I get it, man. Your role is different than the Apostle Paul's. Your, diff- your, your, uh, your role might look different than, than Pastor Trey's. It might look different than, than mine. But here's the thing. The church ought to occupy the center of our lives. The story that God is writing, his people, his bride, the church, Paul says, is the body of Christ. It's the means by which he gets things done on earth. As I told my church, when I want to go get something out of the fridge, I don't just send magic brainwaves over there to get it done, Right? My, my brain tells my body to get up and go get something out of the fridge. And that's exactly how the Holy Spirit works. Our hands and our feet and our mouth, they do things and they say things, and we are that for the Holy Spirit. In your neighborhood, God wants to accomplish things, and he wants to do it through his body. He wants to do it through you. The church is Jesus' bride. It's what he gave his life for. Jesus loves the church, and if Jesus died for the church— You, every single one of us, we should be deeply devoted to it. And I know it's not perfect. The church in America, man, we got all kinds of problems, y'all. But again, that's why Jesus died for it. He died for the church because he loves it. And so in verse 31, he says to be alert. Be alert. Stay alert, which is an interesting command right here. And his point is that, man, it's a mission is to make Jesus look wonderful. That we've got to understand that the real danger here is not necessarily outside of us. The real danger here is not your circumstances. The real danger is not other people. The real danger is not the 24-hour news cycle. The real danger is something inside of you, not outside of you. It's our own sin. It's our tendency to dilute the gospel. Because what else is sin other than saying that something is more wonderful than Jesus? And so I'm going to go back to this over and over and over again. What else is diluting the gospel than saying that Jesus is not enough? That yes, Jesus is good, but I'm going to live for something else. But the gospel is that we were so wicked and we were so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. But it's also that he's so loving and merciful that he was glad to do it. That it was the overflow of his love and his heart to do it. That he lavishes his love on us. And Paul's saying, don't forget that one thing. Don't forget it. Don't get distracted from this because truly believing the good news is to see that there is truly nothing more wonderful than the good news. This is what we live for. 
So stay alert, guard this, so that when people see you, when they step into your homes, when they step into your life, when they step into this church, what do they see? They see your Savior. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Because I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things that I have shown you, uh, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Making Jesus look, look wonderful. Third, it means that we commit to give ourselves away for the good of others. To give ourselves away for the good of others. Paul's last words, a man's final words, are maybe his most important. It's the most significant thing. He says, this is what I want you to remember. This is what is most on my mind. And as someone who has a PhD in theology, I would think Paul's going to give them a synopsis of the book of Romans. Or, or, or here's, the, here's the latest theological idea. I'm going to unpack this before I go so that you understand it. But he doesn't do that. His last words are about generosity. How crazy is that? Paul thought a successful and a blessed life as one in which you give more than you take. But you got to think about this. Why would, why would he think that way? Think about what the mission is. It's because that had been the one defining characteristic of Jesus. It's the one thing he did. He gave it all away for us. His whole life had been defined by giving and not receiving. Even on the night before he died, Jesus was giving. What was he doing? He was washing the disciples' feet. And listen, I knew if, if I was going to die the next day, even if it was for my church, who I love, I, I, I love them, I pray for them, I cry for them, I, I sweat I sweat drops of blood literally for them sometimes. But man, if, if I know I'm going to die for them the next day, it's me time. Y'all, it's time for me to relax, to, to get a giant bowl of ice cream and just go to town. Watch the Georgia Bulldogs on repeat, 24 hours. Let's go. It's me time. But not Jesus. Even there, he served and he calls us to do the same thing. So what would that look like in your home? And the things that feel really hard in your life, to step into them with a posture of Jesus, with this mission of saying, and this story that's about making Jesus look wonderful, to say, hey, there's a story that says this is really hard and these people are in my way, but there's another story that says I get to step into this and, and to declare that Jesus is more wonderful. What would look different about your home, your marriage, your parenting? What would look different about this church if every time you stepped in these doors, that was your perspective, to say, I'm here to give. Yes, I'm here to receive. I'm here to receive, absolutely, but I'm here to give and point other people to the goodness of our Savior. Because here's the thing, nothing you give is too small and nothing can be too much because the King is so great. And we often psych ourselves out and say, man, I'm not going to just stand here at this door. This is so small. Or I can't give that much, but nothing is too small. Nothing is too great because the King is so Great. The gospel is that, man, there's nothing that I can do to earn the love of God. Nothing I can do. I can't earn it. I can't merit it. There's nothing that I have done to earn it or to deserve it. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me any less. My past doesn't disqualify me from the riches of his grace. He gave it all to me, so now I owe it all to him. Paul says, if you want to get the most out of this season, whatever season you're in, if you're a teenager or if you're in the last season of your life, if you want to get the most out of it, Paul says, give more than you take. Verse 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of them all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful. Most of all, because of the words that he had spoken, that they would never see his face again. 
they accompanied him then to, then to the ship. So the fourth thing, making Jesus look wonderful with our life and whatever season you're in, we choose to live as if this season is the season. To, to live as if this season where God has placed you is the season. One of my friends, man, he actually titled this sermon, Tears on the Beach. His sermon on Acts 20, Tears on the Beach. And I love that because right here, Paul's just not showing how we point other people to Jesus, but he's also giving us a blueprint here for the authentic gospel community that our churches get to display to the world. The authentic gospel community that you are made for, that you are saved for, that people around you, they're made for this. He's giving us the blueprint for the kind of community that we all long to be a part of. And here's the thing, we don't get that community that we so deeply want and make and, and, and long, that we want and that we long for, we, we, we don't get it by making community the ultimate goal. Because here's the thing, this community that we want so often, man, it is a tremendous gift, but it's a terrible God. It's a, it's a great gift, living in, in gospel-centered community, but it's a terrible God. Why? Because we're in it. And if you don't screw it up, I'm going to screw it up. Because we're all broken trying to figure it out. But what did Paul, Paul was just with them for three years. And look at how it ended. Man, the gospel had knit them together. They're from very different parts of the Roman Empire. Probably many of them spoke different languages from different cultures, different backgrounds. But the gospel united them together in this community that declares how wonderful our Savior is. He was with them for just three years, but he made those three years the three years. And he did it by pointing people to Jesus and not himself. He did it by saying, man, how can I give more than I take? And that's why when he left, there were tears on the beach. There was much weeping. And so what Paul's saying is he's saying, Eagle's Landing, live this way. Wherever you are, whether you're here for three months, Three years, the next 30 years, live as if those three months or three years are the three years that you have to give yourself away to the people that are around you. Don't be half in. Don't be half out. Live as if this season is the season that God has given you. So that when God calls you home one day and calls you back to himself, or maybe when he calls you to go, to, to go live on mission for him or to, to a job change to a new city or whatever, when he calls you to go, there will be tears on the beach. There will be tears in this church because of the way that you served, the way that you cared, the way that you prayed, the way that you gave. Because of how your life pointed to our wonderful Savior. What does your life say is wonderful to you? What will people who are watching your life, what will they write on your tombstone? In light of what Jesus died for, what will you give your life for? This is a passing of the baton moment right here in the book of Acts. So much of the book of Acts has been consumed with Paul. What he's doing. And he's saying, this story that included me, it's now yours. And God is going to continue to do the same things that he did through me, and he's going to do it through you. What is he saying? He's saying to the church in Ephesus, he's saying to us, this is your time. This is our time to step into the story to leverage our lives to make our Savior look wonderful. You do that, Paul says. You get to the end of whatever season you're in, 
and you'll be able to say, man, it might have been hard. There might have been a lot of pain, but man, it was worth it. Acts 20, it tells us that the church is not primarily a community of convenience. It's not just a community of comfort, although we do receive profound comfort from one another and comfort in the gospel. But the church, Acts 20 says, we're a community of calling. God has called you. Where is he calling you to, what is he calling you to step into right now? If you don't know him, as one pastor says, if you don't know him, the story, the story that God can write for your life the story that Acts 20 invites you to step into, if you don't know him, is far better. It is far more wonderful than any story you can write for yourself. Believer, wherever you are today, whatever struggles, whatever temptations, whatever any of that says about you and your life, whatever hardships you're and afflictions you might be walking through, the story that God is writing for you, it is far more wonderful than any story that you can write for yourself apart from him. As I said earlier, there's nothing we can give that is too small. There's nothing we could ever give that's too much because the king is so great.